0: Hey, everyone. Welcome to Being Well. This is Forrest. I'm joined today, as usual, by Dr. Rick Hansen. And today we have the pleasure of welcoming a very special guest to the show. And this is an episode that I've actually been looking forward to for a long time. There are many experiences that unite us all as people, but perhaps none more so than the reality of our own inevitable passing. And I think it's natural for, in this time of pandemic, our minds to turn to questions of our own passing and the passing of those that we love. Those questions can be really challenging and even disturbing for many people. As regular listeners of the podcast will know, this question of our own mortality and of how to interact with that mortality in the course of our everyday life has been really fundamental for me. So I'm so looking forward to today's conversation with a true pioneer in the field of -of end-of-life care, Frank Ostaszewski. Frank is an internationally respected Buddhist teacher and advocate for compassionate caregiving. In 1987, he co-founded the Zen Hospice Project, which helped establish a long-standing model for mindful and compassionate care. In 2005, he founded the Meta Institute, which has trained countless healthcare clinicians and caregivers in how to provide kind, spiritually informed service, while also building a national network of educators, advocates, and guides— For those facing a life-threatening illness. Frank is also the author of The Five Invitations, Discovering What Death Can Teach Us About Living Fully, which is honestly one of my favorite books, and his work has been highlighted on Oprah, featured on PBS, and honored by His Holiness the Dalai Lama. So to make this absolutely clear, if uh, it hasn't been made clear already, today we're going to be talking about death and dying, and what death can actually teach us about living a good life. These are sensitive topics for many people, including myself. I found this conversation with Frank profoundly moving on a personal level. So if there are moments during the podcast that are challenging for you, please just remember to be kind to yourself. If you need to skip this one or sit out for a little while and come back to it later, of course, that is always wonderful. And however you want to engage with this material in a way that's useful for you is fantastic. So all that said, Frank, thank you so much for being here today. How are you doing?
1: Happy to be with you, Forrest. Thank you for having me. I'm, I'm delighted at the idea of having a conversation today.
2: That's great. So, Frank, as some people may know and many people won't know, uh, you have recently had a stroke, maybe even a series of strokes. You've spent a lot of time, uh, certainly over the last few months, in recovery from it. I'm wondering, how are you doing? Well, thanks for asking. You know,
1: uh, one of the things I want to say about this is that I've sat at the bedside of many people who are ill, many people who are dying, thousands of people, in fact. And I can tell you that the view from the other side of the sheets is really different. Huh, how so? Yeah, when you're the patient, it's a really different experience. One of the things, of course, that um, characterized the experience, Rick, was a sense of vulnerability. And mostly we think of vulnerability as weakness, uh, something we have to protect ourselves against. But in my case, It felt like my greatest strength, actually. I think of it as the quality, the human quality, which is the most human quality, actually. It's what allows the beauty and horror of the world to impress itself on our souls.
2: How is that a strength? Some might argue that that exposes us to being overwhelmed by things and and weakens us. So how would you say vulnerability is a strength? I'll give you an example. When I was coming home from the hospital after my
1: strokes... The home health agency people came, check out my house, make sure it was safe and I wouldn't fall, etc. They were quite concerned about me falling down the stairs. I'm half blind from my stroke, so I don't see very well. So one morning, the next morning after they left, I was standing at the top of my stairs ready to negotiate the stairs for the first time. And I felt quite vulnerable. But in this vulnerability, a kind of awareness opened. I recognized My an image of my son at the bottom of the stairs. Now, I I love my son beyond words, as, as I know you do, Forrest, and I thought to myself, if I fall, I will really harm him. And so right then I made a vow to really be careful in navigating those stairs. And So it was vulnerability which introduced me to love, and love became a tremendous support, more stable for me than the handrail as I was going down the stairs. So that's a way in which vulnerability introduced me to a kind of strength and support. It also opens me to compassion for myself and other beings. You know, one of the practices I do right now, Rick, is at night, before I go to sleep, I'm often in pain or scared because of my strokes, and I lie in bed, and I try and reflect on people who are suffering in different parts of the world who might be alone. And I'm not very good at self-compassion, actually. I'm really bad at it. You'd think I'd be better after all these years, but there's something about evoking that suffering, which gives rise to my innate compassion for others, that then, of Mm. course, spills over onto me. Mm. So at night, that's my practice. I go to bed doing that, in the morning, I wake and I put my hand on my chest very gently, There's something about that physical contact which helps. Yeah. And I say, okay, love, what would you have me do today? And this isn't just California woo woo.
2: You're from the East Coast of America, and I know you as a yes. quite flinty fellow when you need to be. So <laughs> you have the backbone that enables it's true. It's the true. kind of soft, airy, fairy stuff.
1: Well, anyway, I, I do that. I do that. I ask, what would love have me do today? And, and it, it starts to orient me. It's a kind of guidance that helps me to determine, set priorities, get clear about what I'm, how I'm going to proceed through the day. So vulnerability is all these things. It's not just, it's by no means weakness. It's the capacity, it's the capacity to feel fully
2: in a way, to allow everything to inform my life. This is a pretty intimate question, maybe, but I wonder, uh, do you mind saying what you are afraid of at night?
1: Well, um, no, I don't mind at all. One thing that I've noticed, Rick, and I'm sure you have in your practice, is that fear can attach itself to almost any object. Then there's fear itself. So, uh, because of my strokes, I don't have any physical, strong, big physical disabilities, but I have a lot of kind of internal rewiring. And I get these neurological firestorms, I call them, where it's as if my whole body gets, has electricity shooting through it or adrenaline shooting through it or something along those lines. It's it's neither of those two things, but it has that feeling about it. And it's quite overwhelming, actually. And I have to be very still in a blackened room, in a quiet room, in order to regulate again. Hmm. So, my neurological system fires, and it takes it has the affect of anxiety and fear, and that, of course, as I said, can attach itself to almost anything. You know, will it stop? Will it not stop? What will What will happen if I become sick during this pandemic? Those are objects of my fear.
2: Well, I feel, I love you, Frank, you know, I've known you for a while and I've learned a lot from you and I've um, known a a little of what you've gone through. And uh, I just want to say that I feel really touched by just imagining what you're experiencing and and also really struck by the ways that as the fruit of practice, uh, uh, you know, and a good motivator for for me and maybe the rest of us to keep on practicing, you're you're really able to kind of drop beneath it all or drop into the nature of it all. And in that, find compassion, love, and some kind of freedom. You know, um,
1: my friend, Roshi Joan
2: Halifax, we teach together a lot,
1: she's a great Zen teacher. And she has a kind of signature guided meditation that she offers. And we just simply shorthand it and call it Strong Back, Soft Front. Yeah. So the the back is not just physical strength, but that innate strength in us that shows itself as equanimity and an ability to stand on stand up for oneself, to stand on our own behalf, so to speak. And because there's a strong back, we can have a soft front. We can open ourselves to altruism, to compassion, to love, to warmth. Uh, it's difficult to open our hearts if we don't have that feeling of support. So most of us have it just reversed. We have a very armored front and a very um, gelatinous back sometimes.
0: <laughs> I think that's really well said and you've sat with so many people who have been at the end of their life. And many of these people probably haven't necessarily reflected on the nature of of living and dying with with the kind of depth and breadth that you have and as uh, as Rick was just saying there It really does feel like that lifetime of practice has allowed you to kind of approach that experience of your own mortality and the own health challenges that you've been going through here with a different kind of orientation. And I'm wondering what you think the difference is, if it's easy to sum up, between how you relate to that versus some of the people that you've sat with who haven't necessarily had that lifetime of practice.
1: Well, what might be useful to add at this point is when the initial stroke happened, mm-hmm. it was quite severe. Pain like I've never experienced in my life before. It felt like someone was taking a settling torch, a welding torch to my skull. And I didn't know what was happening. I was quite confused. Mm-hmm. But what I noticed was that a kind of background awareness was also present. And I felt a certain quietness and spaciousness, even though this experience was occurring. And I attribute that to many years of Dharma practice, so that what, what could happen is there could be fear, there could be confusion, but it wasn't the only thing in the room. Awareness was also there. So when we notice that we're aware, or excuse me, when we notice that we're afraid, it means we have choice. That the part of us that notices we're afraid is not afraid, and we can function from the fear or we can function from the awareness itself. What I've seen, us in response to your question, is that many people, and I work mostly with folks who lived on the streets of San Francisco, and they didn't necessarily have an inner life practice, but they responded in remarkable ways to their dying because dying gets our attention. It strips away all of the, long-term illness will do this too, it strips away all of our habitual patterns in a way, and shows us something much more fundamental and essential in ourself. And that often rises up for people in the final days, weeks, sometimes moments of their life. And we might say too late, and I would agree, it's too late to wait until the time of our death to discover what it has to show us. But the point is, if it exists then, it exists now. And Mm. we can turn toward it now.
2: Frank, do you wonder if... um Something similarly essential and deep and vital arises within caregivers such as yourself who are meeting at the edge. I think that's Roshi Jones' latest book, um, you know, meeting at the edge with people. You've been a caregiver so much. And as you said, now you're on the other side of the sheets as well. And yeah, what, what can arise in us as we care for or love those who are really vulnerable and maybe dying? Well, it's
1: a really good question. And I I think that innately, we respond when we see someone else suffering. And in general, our wish to relieve that suffering is a compassion or an arising of compassion. It's a compassionate uh, sentiment. Now, often that arises out of a kind of empathy, Rick. You know, I feel with you. You know, I, there's something in my experience that I can build a bridge from to your experience. But what frequently happens is that caregivers become overwhelmed, empathetically overwhelmed. And they don't know how to regulate the experiences that, that are occurring for them. And so they fall into personal distress. And then they start doing something to the patient in this case to alleviate their personal distress So there are two ways in which we might do something that we perceive as helpful. One of those is out of the innate compassion, and the other is out of our desire to relieve our own distress. Yeah. One is really healthy, one not so healthy.
2: Have you found yourself, maybe in little skillful ways, coaching your caregivers? Because you've been in their role, and now you're on the other side, (laughs) and you may have a few tips.
1: (laughs) Well, the temptation is there, of course. (laughs) I think that um, while I was in the hospital, I'll give you an example. You know, when you're in such a situation, hospitals are magnets for suffering, you know, and they oftentimes are, they can be very impersonal kind of places. And so what I found was when I was able to be personal with my caregivers, When I would share a joke with them, when I would share something about my life or introduce them to my daughter or son who was there staying with me, this helped enormously to humanize the experience. One night, I I woke up at three in the morning by a lab tech who came to my room. As you know, they do that in hospitals all the time. And she came in and she said, I'm so sorry to wake you. And um, I said, "Uh, it's okay. I understand you have to do your job before you take my blood, you have to tell me something that you love. I said, then you can take my blood, but you have to first tell me something you love. And this young woman looked at me like I was, you know, crazy old guy. And she said, well, I love my son. I said, well, tell me about him. And he was, he said, oh, he's uh, four years old. And, you know, he's staying with my mother tonight while I work. Yeah, I'm a single mom. And I said, oh, I have a granddaughter who's four years old. We should get them together. And she said, oh, that'd be wonderful. And we went on in a conversation like this, and I said, Hey, don't forget, you got to take my blood, you know? <laughs> <laughs> and so she said, Yeah, okay. And, 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 I, and then she did it, and I said, Oh, you did that so skillfully and so, and like such a beautiful human. I said, Please bring that with you to the next room you go to, you know? And I don't know if she did, but I, I hope she did. So, yeah, I think when we show our humanity, mm. it helps, whether we're the patient or the caregiver. You know, I, ha- I have a lot of tools, Rick, I've developed over the years, a whole big yellow toolbox full of them. But I don't, I don't lead with my tools when I'm working with someone who's ill or dying. If I do, you know, I put that toolbox down in the middle of the room, one of us is sure to trip over it.
2: Hmm.
1: So I don't, I lead with my humanity. I have my tools, I can use them, I, I'm not throwing them out, they're in my back pocket, but and when I need one, I can pull one out, but I lead with my humanity and that seems most important.
0: Yeah, I think that's a wonderful piece of advice for anyone who's in a caregiving role of any kind, and also just a lot of people who've been thrust into impromptu caregiving roles uh, during the kind of current pandemic. Um, As a point of reference on uh, May 24th, that was this past Sunday as we're recording, the front page of the New York Times was dedicated to a 1,000 names of people who've died from COVID, which represents Less than 1% of the total number of people in the United States alone who've died from the virus. And, you know, with the current pandemic and psycho emotional climate, for lack of a better way of putting it, I don't quite know how to refer to it. We've been really bombarded with the reality of our mortality in a way that I certainly can't find a different reference point for in my lifetime. Maybe people who've lived much longer than me could, but this is all fresh and new to me. And I think that you were talking earlier, Frank, about fear. And we all might know intellectually that one day we're going to die, but really feeling that viscerally can be a pretty intense and disruptive experience, even for people who are, you know, 40, 50, 60 years old, who maybe haven't necessarily come to terms with this in a real way. So if you were sitting with somebody during this time who was in their heart truly afraid, you know, either for their own life or for a loved one, what would you want to say to them or what would you want to impart to them?
1: Oh, it's such a good question. Well, if I were to really be honest, you know, I'd first have to check in with myself and come into contact with my own fear. Because, you know, if I say I understand there's someone who's afraid and I haven't really looked at my own fear, if I don't know what happens to me when I'm afraid, does my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth? Does my chest get tight? Do I start strategizing about how to get out of the situation? If I don't know something about that, then if I say I understand, the other person will sniff out my sentimentality and my insincerity, and I won't be a trustworthy refuge to them. So in order to help them, I have to touch my own fear and build a bridge to them from that experience. It doesn't have to be the same fear. And then what I often do is I feel like it's a mutual exploration together. I think people want to be free. And I think they want to actually face uh, the truth of death, but they're scared and they need someone with them who's not so scared, you know? So one thing that comes from looking at your fear regularly is a kind of fearlessness. And by this, I don't mean that we don't have fear. I mean that we're not afraid to be in the room with fear. So if I were sitting with some, such a person, that's my, how I might begin, yeah. And you know, it usually doesn't start with fear of death, it starts with fear of something else, you know, we kind of mm-hmm. build up to that fear of death. We have to find in ourselves when there's fear, something that's larger than the fear. And we've been speaking here about awareness, but I wanna include in that the quality of loving awareness, you know? That it's not enough just to be open and spacious, we need that awareness to be infused with love. Because love is the only thing that can welcome the unlovable, (laughs) the things that appear unlovable. for me, this is essential, you know? Love is not a gated community. Everybody and everything gets to come in, including those parts of us that we most want to reject. Uh, Often I think before I would try any exploration of fear, I was trying to evoke love in the room and in the heart of the person that uh, I was speaking with.
0: Just speaking personally, I, for starters, completely agree. And I think that that's a wonderful framing of it and a wonderful ground to create with somebody else before trying to engage with, enter those those topics or those challenging experiences. Um, and for me personally, just in in reading The Five Invitations and your framing of death as a kind of teacher, which you do very early on in the book. And uh, speaking of all of these experiences you've had where you were sitting with somebody and in the, you know, as you're saying, as you said earlier, final months or weeks or minutes of their life, uh, they had truly a sense of insight or comfort or, you know, wholeness, maybe I I'm not really quite sure what the right word is, and uh, the meaningfulness of that inside of their experience for me was really of uh, uh, aid in terms of certainly how I thought about uh, my own kind of ultimate mortality. So thank you for that. And that's something for me that really helped me with the fear was honestly, and maybe that's my own defense, but was to intellectualize it and was to frame it in terms of like, what could I learn from this? so:
1: That's a beautiful that's a beautiful beginning yeah i think so it is and i I don't mean that in any i mean a good place to start meaning for me is an interesting thing it's essential in our lives in a certain way but it's a changing experience Hmm. conditions change and meaning changes along with them and so it's not like we find a meaning and then it settles in for everything else so when i'm with a teacher one of the things that happens when i'm with that teacher is I, I watch them carefully. And in that observation, I learn as much as I do through their words. Yeah. And, um, the quality of their attention, the way in which they interact with others, their own settledness, for example. So I have to become very intimate with that teacher. And the same is true of death. And, you know, we've tended to keep death at arm's length and try and study it from a distance. But actually, we have to get up really close and personal with it and um, come to know it intimately and not allow ourselves to compartmentalize it into something special and unique, something that happens at the end of a long road of, of aging or, Ill, or illness. But the fact that it's here with us right now in the marrow of our bones, you know. And for me, that's how we prepare in a way for dying. And it's also how we take dying as our teacher. It shows us not so much how to die, but how to live our life, you know, in a way that has purpose and value and encourages us to live with some degree of integrity and and responsibility.
2: You know, Frank, um, I am in the pit of my belly really aware of the fact that you have a son and I have a son. And, and there's some aspects of this that are really real. So when I bring it into the real in the here and now, um, it's true for me. So my father died about five years ago, just shy of his 97th birthday. Forrest was very involved with my father, his grandfather, and in the final months and everything around that. And I was really okay with my dad dying. and And he too was okay with Himself dying. He was a scientist and a Christian, and he said, Either I'm going to heaven, Rick, or it's oblivion, and I'm okay either way. <laughs> that was my dad, very down to earth, born in North Dakota, kind of wonderful fellow. Um, I'm actually, I think we all, we don't know till we know, but I feel basically pretty okay with dying myself. Pretty straightforward. And thinking of you and thinking of me, we each have a son. Each have actually I have a son and a daughter, two children. I'm not okay with my son dying. I'm not okay with that. And so I wondered if you had any comments about that, including uh, how it is to perhaps be at peace with one's own inevitable passing, and still viscerally, viscerally, if I'm really honest, uncomfortable with or not liking the death of those we love?
1: Yeah, it's a beautiful question, Rick, and I want to answer it from my heart and not just from my experience and my life as a father. And, uh, you know, you can't be okay with it right now. (laughs) For one, it's not happening exactly right now. And so the mind alone won't be enough to allow you to embrace profundity of that experience. But I believe that in the dying process there are elements which are conducive, helpful to our coming to terms with this experience. And that happens certainly when there's long term illness, but it can happen even through sudden illness, yeah. That the process itself has a way of well, in long term illness it's a stripping away process. All of the ways I've identified myself, all the roles I've carried. All of those are stripped away or gracefully given up. And now who am I? You know? That's how we that's what happens for us in our own dying. And when it comes to um, being with someone we love who dies, in a way a similar sort of thing happens. You know, Rick, the, the things that have the two questions on most people's minds that I've worked with as they've died or not about their regrets or what they didn't get to do. There really are, the two questions are, am I loved and did I love well? Now, if those are the two most important questions then, aren't they the most important questions now? And, and that's how we prepare, I think, is by living into those questions so fully, so completely in, in your relationship with your children that there's no part left out, you know? I'm suspicious of people who, th- who tell me that they're fully accepting of their dying, actually. <laughs> I think it's from we're fully accepting of it from the position we're in now. Mm-hmm. But again, conditions change, and there might, we might encounter things that we find very difficult to accept. For me, I—sorry, this is a long-winded answer, but I like the word allowing a lot. It takes us beyond accepting and rejecting altogether. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a gentler quality to it. it, takes us beyond hope and fear, you know. We allow, we allow something to occur, and then, we allow, and then, then it's free to sh- unfold and show itself to us, and teach us in the way that Forrest and I were talking about a moment ago. Uh, I think there are things in our life that are impossible, and I think it's impossible to, in advance, accept the death of our children. And I think that we have to trust that all of our practice, all of our life experience, and our will guide us, that our clear minds will help us discern. But really, it's our hearts that will tell us what's true. And you have a really good heart, Rick, and I have Mm -hmm. confidence that it will be a reliable guide.
2: Thank you very much. I mean, that's really touching. And, um, you have this beautiful quotation that Forrest pulled out of your book that I'd like to share and it seems so relevant here. Uh, you talk about a mature hope contrasted with an egoic hope. And um I'm <laughs> I'm practicing in real time myself with this when I reflect on <laughs> how I feel about my children passing away. Anyway, you write when we release our clinging to what used to be and our craving for what we think should be, we are free to embrace the truth of what is in this moment.
1: Our usual notions of hope, our conventional view of hope, is you know very wedded to outcome. It's like a child's wish, I hope I get for Christmas, you know? Mm-hmm. A mature hope is something different than that. It's um it has its basis in trust, in in our own innate resourcefulness to meet whatever arises it's that. But it also, it, it, it's this combination of having a clear intention, like to turn our attention in one direction, and also embrace uncertainty at the same time, to let go completely. Hope is very tied to uncertainty. <laughs> You know, one my friend David Stendelrast, a wonderful Benedictine monk, he, he talks about hope as openness to surprise, actually, mm. and um, I think this is a good, a good quality, you know, to to cultivate in our lives. You know, when I'm with my granddaughter, we play peekaboo, you know, and I can do it ten thousand times for her, and every time she's surprised, and there's a great sense of um, curiosity in that, and a a discovery in that, which I really love. Uh, A willingness to continually discover. Like earlier, we were talking about my strokes, and the doctors keep reminding me of recovery. And you and I have talked a lot about neuroplasticity and its capacity to redevelop pathways in the brain. But I've personally been less interested in recovery. the the thing I've been saying to my doctors is I'm really more interested in discovery. (laughs) (laughs) And what I'm curious about is what can it teach me? Hmm. Now, along the way, my brain functions may return or they may not. But I think if I follow this path with integrity and love, I will be amazed at what I discover along the way. And I think that's become my orientation in life with everything that I mean mm-hmm. in life and that's that can't be done as an act of will that can only be done as an act of love
2: and allowing that word you used earlier yeah. um, to be able to to be capable of discovery yeah well what do you make of this for us so well, you're a young guy you're <laughs> invulnerable you're gonna live forever
0: um well, I don't think I'm going to live forever, but you know, maybe just the next 200 years or so. Um, <laughs> no, all, all jokes aside, uh, I think that you know we all have. Um, I'm trying to find the right way to put this, and I'm extremely interested in your perspective here, Frank. Uh, in in psychology, we talk a lot about defenses, uh, defense mechanisms of various kinds that like protect the inner core of the being from feeling assaulted in different kinds of ways. Um, And I thought it was, it was really interesting when we were just a second ago, when we were talking about thinking or framing death as a teacher versus intellectualizing it versus experiencing it. And I think that there's a really, there's a real truth somewhere in that soup, where for me, as I would just kind of said openly, one of my personal defenses is absolutely intellectualizing, like, how can I take this object and kind of put it in a box outside of myself. And if I just think hard enough about it enough, it'll all work out okay. And that's, you know, my orientation, my structure as a human. And, you know, I think that, as Frank kind of alluded to, it's saying, hey, that's a a good start. You know, that's a good first step. Um, I think that's really true. And I think that part of the first step for all of us is recognizing what some of those defenses are, and recognizing the places where, like, there is a a space that we are using to protect us, and I think that what's so imbued in the in the message of love that you're delivering, Care, Frank, is is allowing that space to become smaller and smaller and smaller, until you are no longer afraid of the thing that kind of rests on the other side of it. And I think that that framing of the whole thing uh, through that message is what for me has been really powerful and helped me increasingly attempt to come to a place of acceptance around my own my own mortality which to be obvious about i am obviously still working on um and kind of very early on that path of but uh just the the act of thinking about it i think is itself you know a good thing there are a lot of people who don't encounter the reality of their own passing until they're on the doorstep of it. Um, and I, I have to imagine that that's a pretty challenging experience for many people. Yeah, I
1: think it is, but I, I just want to kind of applaud your, the way <laughs> in which you're going at this forest. It's beautiful Thank to you. listen to you, and and um, you have a clear and discerning mind, and well, I appreciate nice that. to be around that. And um, you know, fundamentally i think we are transparent beings hmm. and so that's our that's our if that's our default then we can clearly see what's obscuring that transparency and that's that's the opportunity that you introduced us to which is i want to look and see what my defenses are i want to see what obscures that transparency and so the obstacles if you will become the path they become the gateway to that transparency again because once we perceive or clearly see the obstacles, they don't, we don't get rid of them so much, as much as they mm. dissolve. And then the transparency, the innate transparency is there uh, mm. for all of us. So it's beautiful the way you, that I, I'm also, I'm like you, I, I want to look at the obstacles. I want to look at what are the structures, psychological structures, et cetera, that I have in my life to prevent me from seeing clearly.
0: Mm. Mm-hmm.
1: And I have to do the same, not just with my mind, but with my heart. You know, So I need an emotional heart. My emotional, I need access to my emotional heart. I need to know the whole spectrum of feelings, and to know exactly how they express themselves in the body, heart, and mind. And that gives me access to what I might call an essential heart or a spiritual heart. We'll call it that, if you like, just an essential heart, which is not as thrown around by the emotional reactivity and the emotional conflicts that we experience in our very human emotional hearts. Yeah. But you don't just jump to that essential heart. You, the gateway to it is through the doorway of the emotional heart. You know, realized beings still have emotions. Mm. They're just not as slapped around by them as I am. <laughs>
2: I wonder if I could bring up a particular emotion that was very present in a lot of ways during my father's last months, and that's the feeling of anger. And I am want to relate that as well um, to what you said earlier, Frank, about love and the importance of love, and also related to what Forrest brought up earlier about this time of COVID-19. Uh, you know, I've read a lot of Novels, and I think about the Marquez novel "Love in the Time of Cholera," that also being a kind of plague there in South America in the 1920s, I think. And I think these days, "Love and Anger in the Time of Corona." And so, with my dad, there was uh, I had to grapple with many things that I felt frustrated and angry by in, in terms of his care. And then I was I had other people in the larger system um, who could almost not stand still, they were so angry, including with me. So all that's swirling around. And um, I just wonder what you've observed about anger, the anger of people who are passing away, they're angry about this or that, protesting, you know, the Kubler-Ross stages, the anger of people around them, um, how people practice with anger. Ugh. Any, got any, got any tips here <laughs> <laughs> or depths? That'll be a new book titled Tips and Depths. I don't know. But anyway.
1: You know, it is interesting how we take certain emotional, very human emotions like anger, and we relegate them to categories at like such as negativity. We do that mm. particularly
2: with hatred, anger, and hatred. You know, yeah. they're just not allowed. Poisons, afflictions, greed and hatred. Hatred's a poison. Yeah.
1: and And in fact, Those experiences, when known, change. Or another way to think about them is they transform. So anger is essential. Righteous anger is useful. Now, if we get stuck in the reverberating chamber of that anger, then it's not so helpful. Then we just uh, get swept away by it. Right now, there's a lot of divisiveness in our culture, whether it's around politics or wearing masks or believing experts, there's tremendous amount of divisiveness. And it gives way to an awful lot of judgment and anger. And it's painful to see. It's really painful for me to see. And I see it on both sides. My liberal friends keep asking me what we should do about those crazy, uneducated, ignorant people. Yeah. And of course, this that's loaded with judgment and ignorance to to make so, take such a stance. Often with anger, people are always trying to find what's the thing under the anger. And I'm, I'm not so supportive of that. I think the anger itself has value. Hmm. And uh, we ought to examine it and see what it has to show us. And one of the things that I find in anger in myself is strength. I find enormous strength in anger. It gets dissipated by my angry expressions. But the strength itself is really needed. Strength itself is needed to break old habits. The strength itself is needed to meet what seems impossible right now, to stay a steady course, for example, to have steadfastness. Uh, All of that is often entangled in the anger. And the only way we can get to it is to know the anger itself. I mean, an example would be the way in which we can be self-critical and judgmental of ourselves. When I work with students, you know, I, I have them scream at me. I, I imagine that I have them imagine I'm there, you know, that um, I'm their critic. Mm. And so I, I say something quite usually softly to them. It's, it's an expression they've given me. And, um, and I simply repeat it to them. And I ask them to defend against that critic. And I give them various strategies for doing it. But one of them is to get mad. And when they get mad, as soon as I see them rising up and screaming and cursing at me, and, and I say, what's that? And I stop it for a second. And I say, feel your spine. And then they feel this kind of coursing energy going through their spine. And said, "That's you need that. That's useful. That's what allow you to defend yourself against your critic. And so I think the same is true in the world at large, you know, that we ought to look and see what's the valuable qualities in the anger that we may be displacing or simply not in contact with. Now, having said all that and said about the value, I know a woman, Rebecca Solnit, you might know her writing, wonderful writer. She says that one of the things that can happen in our culture is we can deteriorate our constant complaining is a kind of anger and we can deteriorate that into what she calls recreational bitterness Hmm. and that's a lot of the ways that we walk around in the world this recreational bitterness whether it's on social media or you know complaining about this politician or that um or our neighbors for that matter and we just stay again in that reverberating chamber and we're wedded to it we're stuck in it yeah so I wanna know the anger, I wanna know it intimately. I wanna know every, I wanna know all its expressions and how it shows up, how it it manifests in my body, what happens in my mind, I wanna know it intimately so that it doesn't have me by the throat and I can find what's useful in it and and, uh, discard the rest. (laughs) Let's go this, let's take this one step deeper. I think of hatred. And, you know, in, our, in, in the circles that I teach in, Buddhist circles, hatred is considered, you know, just an awful poison. Hmm. And I was sitting one time and I began to reflect on someone who had done me wrong, really wrong, really scapegoated me. And I began to hit one hand on the other, like a chopping experience, you know, and I said, that's son of a gun, you know, and I said, worse things. And I just had this feeling of this almost castrating energy, like I wanted to cut this person out of my life. I wanted to destroy them. I, it had that kind of cold, calculating energy to it. And as I did that, I thought, what's that? So I let myself do it more. And as I did it more, I realized it felt very powerful. Mm. It felt really powerful, that cold, cutting energy. And then I realized, then an image came to mind of a Buddhist bodhisattva, Manjushri is the name of this bodhisattva, Buddhist sage or saint. And Manjushri carries a sword, and it's the sword of discriminating wisdom. And that sword is used in the same way to cut through delusion. And that then is the real gateway to wisdom, to being able to cut through delusion. And so as I thought, as I was doing this cutting energy with my hands, I thought, oh, that's not true power. True power is wisdom. And when I'm cut off from wisdom, I substitute something like a cheap, you know, knockoff. Hmm. It's like a knockoff handbag, you know. Hatred is a knockoff for true wisdom. And so I want to know. I wanna I wanna know intimately every aspect of a thing so it can show itself fully to me, not just its conventional view. Yeah.
2: Were you always courageous when you were a kid? Oh, boy, no. (laughs) I was scared most of the time. Because what you're talking about is deep, deep courage.
1: Yes, I think it is. And it wasn't what I knew as a child. Um, I had to learn it. I I didn't know much about my emotional life as a child, and I had to learn it. And I, I learned it by watching others and in uh, and developing a capacity for empathy that i could feel with them and that enabled me to know more about my emotional life I- i'm so glad you brought up this word courage rick it's really it's what's needed right now you know and and mostly we think of courage as that kind of warrior courage the courage of the soldier or the first responder who you know overcomes their fear and and uh, you know comes to the rescue in some way and we need that kind of warrior courage. It's it's powerful, but it's easily manipulated. It's got a shadow side to it, right? It can be co-opted and and, um, and coerced. I know a lot of healthcare professionals who have the same kind of training to overcome their experience rather than become familiar with it. So that's one kind of courage. And there's another kind of courage where we have courage of heart, hmm. lionheartedness, we call it, right? And it's just as strong and powerful as that warrior courage. But it's about the ability to open to our experience, to the fullness of all everything, you know, all the sorrows and joys. And that's a, that's a really important level of courage as well. And I think there's a third level that I've discovered in my own life, and it comes back to our conversation about vulnerability. And it's the courage to be vulnerable, <laughs> to allow everything to touch us yeah and that actually introduces us to a much deeper dimension of our being which is invulnerable and it's not invulnerable in the sense of the soldier thinks they're invulnerable and so marches off or the teenager thinks they're invulnerable it's the nature of our nature is is invulnerable it can't be hurt. it's never sick and it doesn't die and those are three levels of courage that I think are are worthy of our mentioning at least you know, and um, we can cultivate our contact with those levels and, and um, now is now is the time. now is the time.
2: If it's okay, I, I feel moved to do something uh, in this podcast that I've never done, which is to offer a quotation that seems so relevant here. And, The opening quote is from Thich Nhat Hanh. He writes, Things appear and disappear according to causes and conditions. The true nature of things is not being born and not dying. Our true nature is the nature of no birth and no death. And we must touch our true nature in order to be free.
1: Yeah, it's beautiful, Rick. That's such a good reminder. It it sort of shows us that in the foreground of our experience, everything is coming and going. It's always coming together and falling apart. But that's happening against a background of perfect harmony. And when we fail to see that background, all we see is the coming together and falling apart and all we see is suffering. And so I think it's really important that we know both of those, you know, that, that, that what Thich Nhat Hanh is pointing us to, the nature of our nature, you know. And... Um, It's not a belief system. It's directly, we can directly experience it. I'm not big on beliefs. (laughs) When people are dying, their beliefs come and go. Mm -hmm. But what they have faith in, what they really are, what's trustworthy, remains. And so that's a good question for us to ask ourselves. What do I actually know for sure? What what do I have faith in? What do I actually trust in?
2: You know, it's interesting you say that. I will be finishing up pretty soon. I, I know for myself, uh, I could keep talk, hanging out <laughs> for a timeless time to come. But anyway, you know, it is interesting you say that, Frank, because as you were just a couple of minutes ago speaking, and which prompted me to lead into that quote, which seemed like another way of talking about what you were talking about. If If you have a superpower among or among your key superpowers, um, in my experience of you, is that capacity, which you describe more eloquently than I can right now, to vul- to bravely or courageously and vulnerably open fully, allow fully, and find your footing in that groundlessness. And it's just clearly that's one thing you know for sure, right, in your, in your, in your blood and bones belly, blood, and bones. And I, f- I feel it, and I learn it, uh, I'm drawn to it uh, in your presence here.
1: Well, that's very kind of you to say, and, and I had good teachers, Rick, and great Buddhist teachers, of course, but the biggest teachers for me, the most profound teachers were folks who were dying. And I saw, again, these ordinary folks, regular folks like you and I, you know, who were facing impossible conditions Meet, it, meet those situations in remarkable ways. And so it, it had to come not from some training, but from something that was innate to them, that showed itself, revealed itself mm. in these really difficult conditions, which in a way pulled it out of them, drew it out of them, drew it forward in them. Yeah,
2: That can be such a comfort as people face uncertainties right now, including the possibility of getting ill themselves and, and dying to the... the the comfort in in hearing you describe with complete conviction that uh, as we as we fall apart we fall into what we've always been yeah i mean the greatest
1: pain that i see in the country right now in the world right now but particularly in our country is the core wound of separation the our notion of freedom being that we can do whatever we want without regard for its impact on others and this emerges from a misperception that we're separate and for me compassion emerges from the clear seeing that we're not separate that that you know when my when i cut my left hand my right hand reaches out and comforts it cares for it without question it doesn't ask what my political views are or what insurance I have or or you know what my religious beliefs are. It's just the most natural thing. And so when we recognize our interdependence with one another, when we recognize that we can be unique and individual without being separate, then we care for each other and caring for each other is the most natural thing. It's not it doesn't require any heroics. I'm a little suspicious of heroics to be honest. And Right now in our country, there's a lot of talk of heroes. And I so admire and am so grateful for the kind of work that's being done, particularly by colleagues in healthcare, docs and nurses, most especially in first responders. But I find that heroes get us in trouble sometimes. <laughs> or trying to act heroically gets us in trouble. And I, my experience of true service, and I think it's the culture misses this, is that it's very ordinary. It's very simple and un Unspecial, <laughs> not special. No one special to be, no place special to go, nothing special to do. And so it's just a recognition of our deep unity with one another, that we are of the same cloth. And so we reach out in the darkness and help each other, not because we're good guys or because we've got a white horse that we're riding in to save the day with, but because. It's natural to us. It's innate to us. Dying is the hardest work we'll ever do. And I'm not romantic about dying. It's hard. And, and it doesn't always turn out well. You know? It doesn't have a red ribbon on the box. And yet, when we think about what's happening right now, we're again, I'm very grateful to healthcare clinicians, but most of the care that happens in this country happens with ordinary people.
2: Absolutely, at home or caring for those who are around the edges, uh, like a child, say exactly is losing a grandparent.
1: Exactly, and you know where did they get the training to do that? You know, they didn't go through a course. They didn't have years of study. They fortunately don't have any college loans. They have to pay back for that. <laughs> <laughs> they they learned it, you know, by finding something in themselves that was their best teacher, really. Or maybe they learned it from their grandmothers. Yeah,
2: I don't know. My last question goes to a reflection I've had a lot lately about humanity altogether and what might help. And there are different levels of intervention, different things can help in different ways. Uh, so I tend to focus on what can help inside people's hearts, inside their, their being, their minds. What could help there? And so if, I've asked people this question, which is if you could suggest that a critical mass of humans do something every day for five minutes, let's say 100 million, a billion people every day, what would that be for that five minutes that could potentially really help the world come to a softer landing maybe than the one it's heading toward?
1: You know, I um, I go shopping with my daughter in consignment shops where she buys used clothing. And in those shops, um, while she's trying on something in the dressing room, I go on and look for something else, a well, new blouse or a leather jacket or something cool. And, and I, in this one shop one day, I was looking and I found this blouse for her and uh, it said nine ninety five as is. And I looked at it and I thought, you know, cause the, the shirts have some tear or missing a button or something. And I looked at that tag and I said, that's beautiful. We should get those tags for ourselves and each other as is. <laughs> <laughs> is there a greater gift we could give ourselves or anyone else than to say, I take you as is. I take you as is. And uh, so if there's any practice that we could do, we could we could make that our practice. It was a vow to my wife uh, when we got married. I bowed to her and I said, I take you as is yeah with all of your foibles and beauty and uh and uh confusion,
0: I mean Frank, thank you so much for taking the time to do this today. This was a absolutely wonderful conversation, and uh you know speaking personally again, I was you know truly touched by it, so thank you for doing this.
1: thank you for for inviting me. I hope it's of some small service to the listeners.
0: I'm sure it'll be a a great deal of service to a great number of people
2: personally, really, on behalf of people listening and very much on my own behalf. Thank you very much.
1: Yeah, you're welcome. Thank you for everything you do and and for allowing me to be part of that. I'm really grateful.
0: So today we had the true pleasure of speaking with Frank Ostaseski. Frank is the founder of the Meta Institute and the Zen Hospice Project in San Francisco. His wonderful book, The Five Invitations, is truly one of my absolute favorite books bar none and particularly inside of this territory. If you'd like to learn more about Frank or purchase the book, I've included links in the description of today's episode. Before we go, I wanted to give you a quick reminder about our new Patreon page. For the cost of just a couple cups of coffee a month, you can support the podcast and receive a bunch of wonderful bonuses in return. For instance, I put together pretty detailed show notes for every episode that we do, I pour a lot of time and effort into them, and I think that you'll really enjoy them. So, if you'd like to do that, again, there's a link to that in the description of today's podcast episode. Or you can go to patreon.com slash beingwellpodcast, and you'll find us right there. Finally, if you've been enjoying the podcast, we'd really appreciate it if you would leave a rating, a positive review, and maybe even tell a friend about it. It really does help us out. So, until next time, thanks for listening.